morning. My name's Torn. I get to be one of the pastors here. And I love our church. And I love being back together. A couple years ago, uh, I bought a pontoon boat for our family. Now, uh, Facebook has obviously learned of this reality, and they keep sending me an ad to try and buy this shirt. I never dreamed I'd grow up to be a super sexy pontoon captain, but here I am killing it. Now, I will admit, uh, no young person grows up dreaming of being a pontoon captain. I simply wanted a boat to get out on the water so that I could keep my kids away from electronic devices and hopefully make some memories as a family. And more than that, it was cheap. So that's why I decided that we would have a pontoon boat. Let's be real. Nobody grows up thinking like, ooh, I would love to captain a pontoon boat. No. If I was thinking about the kind of boat that I would want to grow up to drive, it would be a boat like this. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about, right? Fast, powerful, sleek, flashy. And if I couldn't have that boat, then I would at least like to have this boat right here. Come on, right? Drive to Holland State Park, put the top down, and then literally just drive right through the parking lot into the sand, out into the water. Like, that would be baller. Uh, this is Jordan Kohler's uh, actual dream boat right here. That's, that's actually a pretty awesome boat, uh, to be honest. And I'm pretty sure that's not a Photoshop, believe it or not. Now, look, every single one of us is into, like, the cool things, the flashy things, like that's the stuff that often gets our attention that we desire. Now, uh, last week I said that there was a key ingredient that I was going to share with you this week about how we can develop and keep habits as well as find people to imitate. As you know, we've been in our cardiology series, What You Desire is What You Become. And we learn that it's our loves that actually drive us. What we love is what we pursue. It's what we become in life. And we were reminded last week that it's our habits, the practices, whether they're conscious or unconscious, whether we recognize it or not, that actually wind up shaping our loves. And so it's important that we find people to imitate, Okay, we learn that from Scripture, as well as practices that we can continually do to form habits because habits are the virtues or vices that shape our loves. So what I'd love for you to do as we begin to move into this key ingredient is to open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, you will find this is a very recognizable passage because we've looked at it each of the last two weeks. This is an important passage for us as we continue to engage in our thinking about what is it that's actually driving me. Colossians chapter 3, let's read again, starting in verse 12. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, those three things are really important just to recognize real quick, okay? He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, God has chosen you. Then it says that you are holy. God has declared that you are holy. You've been set apart 
for something he wants to do. And then it says, and dearly loved. We are the thing that motivates God's purpose, God's plan. It's his love for us. That's all huge. He says, because of that, therefore, clothe yourselves or put on these virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, right, these good moral habits that we learn through practice and imitation, he says, put on love. Put on love. Love is the thing that binds all of this together. It's interesting because our Our habits actually shape our loves, but our loves are the things that actually drive who we are, what we're becoming, what we're about, what we're pursuing. Virtues are habits that form our loves, and what we love determines what we become. Virtues require practice, right? They require people to imitate. And that was the homework that I gave you last week. Anybody remember that? I said, pick a virtue and practice it for a week. Or find a spiritual hero. How'd you do? Usually I don't come back and hold you accountable, but I am this week. How did we do, church? Uh, The other day, I actually went and uh, looked up one of my heroes and just started doing some more reading. Listened to actually uh, a sermon that he gave. Uh, His name was Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott actually passed away about 20 years before I was even born. Uh, But Jim Elliott was passionately in love with Jesus. And it affected and infected his entire life. In fact, so much so that he chose to spend his life trying to share that love that he had for Jesus with a group of people that nobody else wanted to go to. And he wound up being killed for it. was a martyr. Uh, Jim Elliott in... uh, One of his journals wrote this. It's one of the most famous lines. You've probably heard it before. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll admit, and I've admitted this a bunch of times, I, I find myself way too often loving things way more than I ought to. I want to live my life the way Jim Elliott lived his life. I want to be willing to give up things that I can't take with me into eternity to gain things that I cannot lose and will have with me for all eternity. I want to live that kind of a life. He's one of my heroes. He's somebody that I want to imitate myself after. What then is the key ingredient for finding people to imitate as well as to develop practices and keep them, right? Because it's one thing to start a practice, a whole other thing to keep it up long enough for it to become a habit, a virtue. What is that key ingredient? Well, let's keep reading because we're going to find it here in Colossians chapter 3. Keep reading with me starting in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Look at verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly 
as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God. What is he describing there? Anybody want to take a guess? What? Church. That's right. Friends, the key ingredient in developing and keeping habits as well as finding people to imitate is the church. You don't seem nearly as excited about this as I do, right? And I don't think that that's an accident. It's an unfortunate reality, but I think way too often we want that really cool, exciting, like, oh man, he's going to give us this little nugget of truth this pithy saying, maybe he's going to tell us about some super cool class that I could take, or maybe it's, it's this camp that I could go to, or, or maybe it's some super sexy experience where it's going to be like mountaintop and awesome, and that's what's really going to do it for me. And instead, it's the church, the pontoon boat of spiritual development, <laughs> right? I mean, all too often, that's what it feels like. And yet the church, when she is properly understood and experienced, is one of the most beautiful, powerful entities on the entire face of the planet because it is God's very own design. Now, I don't think that the church is actually a pontoon I think that it's something else, but before I give you the metaphor that I think best describes it, I'd like to share with you two other metaphors that I think way too often we apply to the church. And I'm including myself in this, not just you, okay? The first one, continuing along with our boat theme this morning, is the church as cruise ship, right? We kind of think that, well, that's what the church exists for. Like, I pay my money, and then I get on, and I don't have to do jack squat. Like, I, like I, I'm going to enjoy my bed, but I'm not going to make it. Somebody else is. I'm going to go, and I'm going to eat food that I didn't prepare, and it's better be amazing food, and I'm not cleaning up after myself either. Somebody else is doing the dishes, and the entertainment is off the chain. If I feel like doing something, I'll do it. If I don't, I'm just going to chill. Like, way too often we treat the church as a cruise ship and we're always looking to see if there's maybe a better cruise ship out there like oh yeah but like they're all right here but the food over there is better right the entertainment over there is better this they have this thing because we see the church as something simply to consume and when we treat the church as a cruise ship It's all inward focused. It's all about me and meeting my needs. But that's not what the church is designed to be. Another better but still incorrect metaphor that we will often think of then is the church is a battleship. The church is a battleship. Like, I'm going to get on the battleship. We're going to go to the battle. And the organization, therefore, is supposed to do the fighting, right? fight against evil, rescue the people that need to be rescued, and we pay pastors to go and do it. It's the paid staff that's supposed to run the ministries, that's supposed to do the programs, create the programs, preach the sermons, care for the people that are sick, and way too often we can think, hey, the church is a place of action, but 
It's just those that are going organizationally, those that are being paid that are actually supposed to do it. We just get to sit back and watch the bombs going off. But that's, while a little bit better, because at least now we're outward focused, it's still way too passive. I think the better illustration or metaphor for the church is that of the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier. See, an aircraft carrier is intended to help prepare you and I to go out to do the mission that God has called his church to do. Aircraft carrier is intended to prepare us, get us ready. But it's not the one actually engaging in the battle. It's preparing you and feeding you and fueling you so that you can be sent out to rescue those that need to be rescued, to care for those that need to be cared, to actually fight back against the evil in our society. Like that's what an aircraft carrier does. That's what the church is intended to be. It's a place that you come and you're prepared. You're, you're fueled up. You're fed. You're cared for. The gathering of Christ's church is where we get instruction where we're prepared, where we're encouraged so that we can get sent out. Uh, Christopher Wright says this. He says, Jesus did not give a mission to his church. He formed a church for his mission. That's an important distinction for us to understand. Jesus did not give a mission to his church. He formed a church for his mission. In other words, Jesus already had a mission. It was the mission of God that his father had given to him to come and reach, redeem, and restore this world. And Jesus, when he leaves, he forms the church to carry on the mission. He didn't create the church and then say, oh, what should I have it do? There was already a mission in place, and we're supposed to be the ones now carrying it out. We become the hands and feet of Jesus. That's a metaphor that gets used all over Scripture. God is the head of his body, and we are the ones that are actually carrying out his mission. That's what an aircraft carrier does, right? It has fuel for the planes and food for the pilots. It's there to prepare us to do the real work of, of battling and rescuing and caring. And did you know that uh, an aircraft carrier has a hospital on it? So that when you go out into the battle and you get wounded, you come back in and there's people who are going to care for you and take care of you and when you rescue somebody who's experienced hardship and trauma they can come back and be cared for the aircraft carrier is a place where you reconvene to celebrate the victories that you've seen and console one another with the losses that you've experienced it's a place to be encouraged so that you can be sent out again and again and again and again the church is literally a gathering of people. The word church, ecclesia in Greek, literally just means gathering, right? If you never gather together, you're not a church. It's kind of that simple. But the point isn't simply the gathering. The point is to be prepared in what happens here so that we can be sent out to do the mission that God has called us to. The worship of the church is intended to do this for us to give us new habits, to show us new examples for us to imitate. Uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I'm 
slaughtering your name, Antoine, I'm sure of it, so I, I apologize now, but back in the 50s, he said this, and I love it. Because when we think about how the church is supposed to do this, he gives us a beautiful picture. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. This is what the worship of the church is intended to do. It's intended to show us the immensity of God's love and grace it's intended to restory our hearts and our minds, to give us a picture of what's actually good and true and right and best and remind us of these things that we've heard in whispers and put real flesh and, and, and bone to these ideas where all of a sudden it's not just this thing that we've heard about, but now we're experiencing it. That's what worship is supposed to do. It's the listening and the learning. It's the singing and the sacraments. It's, it's the consistency of coming together to praise, to worship, to be reminded of who God is and what he's about. It's a weekly rhythm, a weekly rhythm of hearing and learning and experiencing God's endless immensity of love and grace. And when we participate in it, it recaptures our hearts again reminds us of what is good and what is true. Uh, this is exactly what Paul was describing in Colossians 3. It's why he says, hey, because of what God has done, right? He's like, therefore, as God's chosen and holy and dearly loved children, because of that, right, there are some things you ought to do. Put on some habits, some virtues you ought to develop. And he lists them all off. And he says, and tie it all together with love, right? And then he goes on to describe where that happens. It happens when we gather together to admonish and teach one another, to sing songs of worship and praise. These become rhythms that we begin to develop. Yeah, maybe it's not the highlight of a camp experience. Camps are awesome. I'm all about them. Uh, maybe it's not a class where you're going to learn so much over the course of a semester. Uh, maybe it's not some super experiential Thing that you feel deep in your bones every single week, but there's something about the habit of coming together as the church to worship that begins to reform our hearts, our loves, our minds, our actions. Uh, the writer of Hebrews understood this. The writer of Hebrews, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, explains what church is supposed to do, what it's supposed to be like. So as we flip over there, uh, this is actually going to be a little bit weird at the beginning, and I'll explain why, but start reading with me in verse 18. The writer of Hebrews says this, he says, and he's speaking to a church, okay? He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm." to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. That's a really weird explanation of something that you probably are like, what is he talking about? What the writer of Hebrews is referring to is when Israel actually became God's special possession, God's holy 
nation. It's when God gave them, spoke over the nation of Israel, his covenant, and spoke the Ten Commandments over them. It was this mad, crazy experience. They all assembled before the Lord at Mount Sinai. God came down in a pillar of fire and cloud and smoke, and there was an earthquake, and I don't know if Mount Sinai turned into a volcano for a little while or what exactly was going on. It was the power and presence of God, and it freaked them out, like legit. In fact, the people actually said to Moses, Moses, please tell God to stop speaking to us or we're going to die. And they weren't saying it like metaphorically, like, ah, it's just too much. My, you know, my hair is tingling. No, they're like, we're literally going to die. Our hearts are not going to work anymore. We're going to all drop. And so this is this formative moment for Israel. Do you know what they wind up calling it? This formative day, they call it the day of the assembly. The day of the assembly. In fact, Israel actually gets a nickname from this experience. Israel, one of their nicknames is the assembly of the Lord, the gathering of the Lord. Jesus comes along and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I'm going to build my assembly, my church. That's the word ecclesia. My gathering, my assembly, I'm going to build it on you. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, when we go to church, when we go to the assembly, it's not like that one that Israel experienced. It's different. Let's keep reading to find out what it's like. He says in verse 22, but you, church, assembly, have come to Mount Zion. Now, not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion is another name for heaven where God resides. He's saying when you gather to worship, you're actually coming to heaven. Every time that we meet on a Sunday morning, we're literally opening up a window to heaven. We're taking the future, eternity, and we're bringing it here to earth. In fact, keep reading and look what it says. It says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jump down with me to verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's like, look, when you gather, you're not gathering them outside anymore. No, we gather with all Christians of all time in heaven, with the angels that are praising God over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We open up a window, man. Something otherworldly literally is happening in the gathering. That's what it's intended to do. Woo, I'm sorry, I, I get excited about it. You don't have to, so you, maybe you are, I can't see, it's all right. I'm excited because this stuff matters. It may not be flashy all the time. It may not be the thing that you hoped for. Might not sound super sexy. But what happens when we gather at church is powerful. It's powerful and life-changing, heart-reforming. Every time that we decide we're going to make this gathering a habit, God begins to reshape us. We flip back just two chapters to Hebrews 10. 
the writer of Hebrews says this. He says in verse 23, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, don't give up meeting together. Don't stop doing it. Why? Because there's something powerful that happens when we make the decision to turn our churching, our assembling into a habit. A consistency. That's actually where we help each other hold unswervingly to the hope. Right? Where we spur one another on to love and good deeds. James K.A. Smith says this. He says, Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counter-formation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in. Cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. The church is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Look, friends, I know church is not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect church. That is the reality of the fact that we are human beings, and yet Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that. It wasn't an afterthought where he's like, oh, man, what have I done? (laughs) I left the church in their hands. That was a dumb idea. No, Jesus understood that. Jesus understood that we weren't going to be perfect, but Jesus also understood that when we gather together as the church, that Jesus is still present with us, and that the Father is still loving us, and that the Spirit is still transforming us. The church may not be the flashiest boat on the sea, but it's the only boat that holds the Lord of the sea. When we gather together, in Jesus' name, he meets with us. The Spirit is still moving, and we are reminded of the grace and love that the Father has for us, friends. There is something powerful. Now, the church may not be the coolest entity in the world, but she is God's plan A, his plan B, even his plan Z, for redeeming and restoring this world and your heart. So what are we supposed to do with it? Uh, I heard a pastor this past week actually give four new habits that I think are so crucial for us. And so I'm going to give them to you. Okay? Four new habits that I want you to start practicing now. You ready for this? Number one, the first new habit that I want you to start putting into practice is I want you to establish a Sunday morning routine. Look, you all had one. Okay, I'm talking to those of you that are in here as well as those of you that are online with us right now. We all had one and then COVID hit, right? And then Michigan summer hit because that hits every year. But you combine COVID and Michigan summer and all of us have experienced the disruption of our routines. Our Sunday morning routine does not feel like or look like it has 
for a very long time. And so what I want you to do is promise me that you will establish a Sunday morning routine. Look, some of you, okay, probably those of you that are not sitting in the room right now because otherwise you wouldn't be here. So I'm mostly talking to those of you online currently. Some of you are too vulnerable to return to in-person worship right now. We will acknowledge that, okay? And we will love one another. But there is a similar truth that most of us are not too vulnerable. Now, I don't want nobody to get COVID. I don't want to get COVID, all right? I don't want our church to be a place where COVID gets spread. But I also recognize that what happens in the church in our spiritual formation, is essential. It's not a non-essential. Jesus was actually very clear about this. We don't preach about it too much because, quite honestly, it feels a little like, oh, I don't know if I want to say this, but Jesus actually said, don't fear the person that can kill the body. Fear the person that can kill the soul. Now, I'm not saying be nonchalant when it comes to COVID. What I'm simply saying is don't be nonchalant with COVID, but don't be nonchalant with church either. If you're too vulnerable because of pre-existing conditions or things like that, continue to worship with us online. We are so glad that you're here. Make a Sunday routine for that. Plan it. Set your alarm. Put on some real clothes. Make yourself some breakfast. Tune that thing on. Whatever you got to do, I don't care. All right? Get your kids set up with whatever you need to do. But make a Sunday routine. For many of us, it means that we probably can begin to gather again. Now, we've got limited capacity, all right? It's not exactly the same. We all get that. We know that. But there's still something powerful about how our habits and loves are formed when we gather together. Church shouldn't be one of the last things that you re-engage with in this season. It should be one of the first. Make a new habit of a new Sunday routine. Number two, establish a local group routine. Establish a local group routine. Small group, life group, whatever you, we call them local groups here. Look, I don't care if you're the leader of your group or not. Take leadership. Step up, step out, call the folks in your group and say, hey, uh, we're going to start meeting again. I don't care if you meet in somebody's driveway, somebody's backyard, somebody's house. Even if you have to meet online or in a park, step up, take leadership, and say, hey, we're going to start meeting again. Establish a local group routine. Now, if you're not currently in a local group, if you don't have Christian community, one of the greatest gifts of the church is the fact that she provides for us people for us to engage in real biblical community, people we can share our lives with, celebrate with, care for, be challenged by, right? That's what... The church helps us to do. If you don't have that right now, I want you to reach out to me or to Austin. We're actually going to be kicking off small groups this fall, so we want to get you set up and signed up. We're going to need some great leaders for that as well. We are planning to kick off Rooted this fall, which was awesome if you went through it last year. If you didn't, it's a fantastic way to not only kind of supercharge your own faith, but really to supercharge an opportunity to step into community. Establish a local group routine. The third thing I want you to make a new habit of is keep your kids connected. Keep your kids connected, okay? Uh, 
Don't allow church to become optional for your kids. If they need to be driven to the youth group, small group event, drive them there. Make sure that they recognize and understand and see in your own life that this is an important value. Uh, If they're old enough to sit through part of the service with you at home, have them do that. Uh, This is an investment. It's hard. Like, I get it. I got four kids. This has been a crazy season. My kids are older. If your kids are younger, it's hard. But this is an investment. It's an investment in their future, and we're here to help. We get that it's hard. Pastor Dave, reach out. He would love to help you come up with some tips and ideas on how to keep your kids engaged and feeling connected. And then the last thing is pray for your church. I want you to start praying for your church daily. Look, friends, I'm concerned about us. I'm not concerned if we're going to survive. We are. I'm not concerned about the fact that we have to like have limited seating and we have to wear masks. What I'm concerned about is that God is on the move and wants to do something and we may be missing it. What I'm concerned about is that God is not wasting this disruption, but possibly you and I may be. God is still wanting to use us, wanting to use individually you in your neighborhoods and your workplaces and your schools to continue to share the good news of Jesus. Look, 2020 is one of those years that everybody keeps showing up these memes like, we can't wait to forget it. It's a train wreck and this and that. And it is. 2020 is awful. All right. However, 2020, I actually believe, could be one of the greatest years for a whole host of people who've been without hope for a long time or maybe are finally realizing that what they thought was control is just an illusion and the money that they used to have is no longer there to to blind them to that reality. And now they actually are in need and they're looking for answers and they're looking for hope. And you might be the very thing that God wants to use. Invite them to church. Invite them into spiritual community. Share with them your faith, the things that you've learned about Jesus. Talk about Jesus in your normal uh, daily conversations. Talk about the things that you're learning. As you do that, you don't know what God might do. So I want you to pray for your church. I think we're going to hear some stories a year from now about people who found forgiveness and grace, reestablished a relationship with Jesus that they had lost years, even possibly decades ago because of how God used you, because you were willing, because you weren't just waiting for things to return to normal. Pray for your church. Father God, your church, way too often we make her look unappealing. I'm guilty of that. But she is not. Oh, God, your church is beautiful. And your church is powerful. And when your church gathers to worship you because you deserve worship, it's in the sacraments, it's in the singing, it's in the listening and learning that, Spirit, you reform us. You change our hearts We want to be a changed people who because of our time together is now sent back out into this world 
to be your hands and feet and accomplish your mission of reaching and redeeming and restoring this beautiful place. Help us to do it here in Grand Rapids for your glory and your honor. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.